Hey everybody, welcome to the Chainlink God podcast, where we break down the information asymmetry on all things blockchains, oracles, and smart contracts. Today, I think it would be fairly relevant and interesting to talk about where we are in the crypto market. Uh, a lot's happened since the last time we recorded something. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see kind of why we're in the stage, the current period we are in the crypto ecosystem, and what exactly needs to be done to take crypto to the next level. So to discuss these topics, I have the one and only Crypto Oracle on with me. How are you doing today? Yeah, doing good, all things considered, but obviously not a very fun time to be in crypto markets the last few months. So, but all, but trying to keep myself busy and not 100% focus on crypto, taking up a few hobbies as of late to take my mind away from it. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's been pretty bloody. Most crypto tokens are down 80-90% from all-time highs, which is for most tokens about a year ago. Um, that's kind of the elephant in the room right now. <laughs> Why is crypto down so bad? Um, I think part of it is largely factors that are outside of our control. Um, macroeconomic, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, and that is just going to crush speculative assets, of which crypto is very much still a speculative asset. But you know, the, this isn't the only industry that's feeling the pain right now. But um, I, I think that the pain has been excessive for crypto. Um, I'm interested. What, what's your perspective here, Crypto Oracle? Why, why is why is crypto down so bad right now? Sure. Um, you know, take my opinion with a grain of salt. I'm a casual gut instinct observer, not some sophisticated anal- you know analyst. But I think. Obviously, the macro affects crypto to a certain degree. Um, I think it affects large players more than it affects, you know, like retail users. I don't think retail users, well, I think maybe retail users sell because they think funds are going to sell. But I think, you know, the macroeconomic, I think, is some factor because you have people who who just want to hedge downturns with like they, they look at all risk on assets as one bucket. And crypto, obviously, being one of them, but I think in general, the like the question you asked is why is crypto hit so hard? Because it's you know it's an excessive downturn and it's rapid and it's fast. And I think because the crypto markets, well, first I think there's this shit ton of leverage in the market, and once that starts to unwind, it just like cascades, um, and it, and I think you know, to some degree, because everything can be seen on chain, it might happen even faster in crypto markets as, you know, one thing leads to another, then everyone sees it. And then everyone just, you know, it's like, it's like the market cycles play play out in like super accelerated timeframes. And on a side note, I almost wonder because of the, the way well, now, like, for one thing, you have the internet now where so communication happens so rapidly compared to, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But now you have this extra transparency with, elite, you know, on-chain metrics, which doesn't describe the entire markets as we've seen with all these like off-chain lending platforms that kind of ex- completely exacerbated the current problem with all these unsecured loans and stuff. But I think the on-chain analytics do give that additional insight, which then further hastens people to to sell or to to act even faster and i almost think market cycles in general 
I think it's part of a growing trend of market cycles just going quicker, especially uh, with blockchains. But taking out some of the macroeconomic factors, you know, crypto has been in an innovation lull for some time now. You know, we had kind of this explosion in DeFi primitives in like, what, 2020? And then a lot of what happened after that was Ponzi-nomics, you know, products that were just, the product was an economic model. And like, yes, they tried to, you know, say that there were other, you know, it was trying to do something else. But in reality, most of the products were token economic models. And that's not really a product. I mean, I guess if you're trying to be a money, but, you know, I think there was a very low chance of a lot of those products ever becoming some stable asset. If anything, they're the opposite of stable. Um, and then, yeah, you just saw a lot of copycats. And so, you know, when the market started to downturn and you had, and, it, and then, and then you had, yeah, all this yield farming where products were just basically launching some, you know, copycat or some slight difference, giving away free rewards. And as those, as those dried up and then as kind of, you know, the game of chicken starts to end and people start to sell, you know, it, it cascades. And then you add in all the leverage and you add in all the unsecured leverage outside, you know, it just snowballs, I guess, out of control. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of factors. I don't think it's just because of macroeconomics. The reality is crypto has, you know, and smart contracts and DeFi and all this have a long way to go. And I think there are a lot of, we're seeing... Where the pro and you know, I, obviously, I would I would prefer this not happen. But in some ways, we're seeing right now where the biggest vulnerabilities in the industry are, and hopefully, you know, if we are a viable industry, which I think we are, at the end of the day, those will be addressed before the next cycle. Because I think we're really seeing, you know, where are the biggest problems at, and I think we'll discuss this in a little bit. But yeah, that would be my take. You bring up good points here, I think, on that last one. It's, it's kind of why crypto is anti-fragile. If this was the traditional economy, governments would come in and they'd bail out these unsustainable actors and they would continue operating. But in crypto, there isn't the safety net. And so an unsustainable organization or protocol, if it breaks down, it breaks down and there's no one there to catch it. So it's like the survival of the fittest. I, I think when you bring up the point of like, um, we're in an innovation lull period. And that's that's completely true. I mean, if, if you look at what happened in 2021, you know what 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 was the themes? And I feel like there are really two. That was the NFT track, which is just like what the fuck happened there. I mean, I, I did not expect NFTs to blow up as much as they did, but this little side squ- uh, side quest became the main story of crypto. Of you know, it wasn't so much about financial sovereignty. It was about these digital artwork pictures of a monkey smoking or something and now it's worth like six hundred thousand dollars and it's like it got a little ridiculous there but that was what a lot of the focus of people's attention was was on these speculative use cases um and i think the other track still speculative but it was basically what i call the chain rotation thesis of you have these primitives built out you have uniswap you have ave compound you have the ethereum and its evm but you know ethereum eventually became really congested because there were so many users. And so they that demand needed to be offloaded somewhere. And so this thesis came up where you can basically just fork Ethereum, you take the EVM, you redeploy all these same applications, 
And you, importantly, deploy a token subsidy printer on top of this. And so people migrate over to get the free money that's printing out of these boxes, these DeFi protocols, that pumps up the TVL and the revenue metrics, which look really good. And then people speculate on these tokens, and then these tokens go up in value, which means the yield goes up, which means it attracts more capital. And it's kind of this virtuous, very reflexive cycle where TVL grows up very quickly, crypto asset prices go up very quickly. Um, and then, like you said, it's kind of like a game of chicken where like people start to exit. And then now all of a sudden, the subsidy yields not worth as much. So people leave, which then makes looks bad for the protocol. So people sell their tokens, which makes the yield go down. And like the same exact reflexive thing that made crypto go up so much made crypto go down so much. Um, and that was really a huge part of the 2021 cycle. Um, the application layer is just like we built most things like the, most of the DeFi primitives already exist. We have the DEXs, we have the money markets, we have the derivatives. And a lot of the focus is on the infrastructure layer. Uh, the infrastructure layer is just kind of facilitating these economic experiments. And in my mind, once uh, interest rates started going up, that was like, all right, you know, the, the, the time's up, basically. Uh, I don't think it necessarily caused the pain we're feeling you know, to like the full extent, but I think it was like once something that triggered the end of this Ponzanomic game. And then now we're kind of feeling the downward cycle of like unwinding all the leverage, unwinding the Ponzanomics. And so that's kind of my theory here. Uh, I think that's people seem to assume that DeFi is so different than TradFi, traditional finance. I don't think it's that different. We're kind of making the same mistakes that we have hundreds of years ago, I feel like. Yeah, I think, you know, Robert, Robert Leshner, I think, had a good tweet where he said that DeFi is going to make all the same mistakes that, you know, TradFi made. And I think, you know, that's kind of happening now. Uh, another thing I, I think is coming that is, you know, people are feeling more is that being a liquidity provider is not a risk-free move. And there's actually a lot of risks and a lot of risks that not particularly black swan events, but also then the responses to black swan events and what those might entail. And, and so, you know, and that's probably going to have quite big ramifications on liquidity in the space. Um, so it, it's going to be very interesting how protocols react, you know, like, for example, like if one large player has a substantial portion of liquidity in a protocol and they remove it, you know, what are the effects of that? Or, you know, how does governance work <laughs> in these situations? You know, is it rapidly deployed? Is it not like, you know, maybe we can get into some of these, you know, like dichotomies, I think, that are kind of going to happen in crypto because of these big events. You know, if you want to maybe jump to that, but I got some thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of... At this point, we're basically seeing what uh, systemic failures and cascades look like in our ecosystem. I mean, a lot of our assumptions were that like economic models that work when token price goes up, and now we're experiencing how do these mar how do these models work when number don't go up anymore? Number goes down, bad. What happens then? <laughs> like, like I explain, like I'm five. That's basically what that's kind of happening here. And so, like we saw that with Terra Luna, with Terra USD that collapsed and that kind of caused a chain reaction of events afterwards where, you know, people started to question stable coins. People started to pull their liquidity from places. Then that put strain on 
Celsius. And now Celsius can't honor their obligations because there is a time difference. They lock, they have short-term obligations, but they invest everything in long-term, um, I don't want to say schemes, but uh, investment strategies. Um, and now they have these all these obligations that they can't pay right now. And then that puts pressure on funds um, like 3AC, which... You know, they, they were kind of, they, they overextended themselves a little bit too much and that um, put too much market pressure on them. And then that caused the next lender to be able to default and then the next lender to default. And we're kind of in the middle of this down leveraging position. And so it seems like to me, having your assets on a, a centralized lending platform is not the greatest position to be in right now. But ironically, de-risking yourself triggers a bank run on those platforms in the first place, which... You know, you, when you deposit your assets to a centralized platform, like like a Celsius or like a Nexo, you're not actually depositing it; you're actually lending it, and you have no control over what they do with those assets. And it's not DeFi; it's off-chain; it's it's CFI. So, you know, I don't want to say this organization is going to collapse, this lender is going to collapse, but I don't think we've seen the end of this cycle yet. There's still loans that are being defaulted upon, and unless somebody like SBF steps in. And bails out some of these lenders, which is, you know, it's a possibility. I don't know if he's going to do that or not, but that's basically the two decision. That's like the decision tree we have. Either these lenders keep collapsing because they can't meet their obligation and the bank run continues, or we're going to see, you know, an SBF type entity come in and basically bail out some of these funds and inject the much needed liquidity that doesn't exist in the ecosystem. I don't know if you have any thoughts there, but that's basically the two decisions I see here. Uh, SPF, save us all, please. (laughs) But but then at the same time, you know, I mean, I don't know, this ultra, altruistic, uh, I don't know what he calls it, altruistic investing or something like, invest just to help seems a bit, uh, a bit of a PR thing. Yeah. But I don't know if it's like in- investing to like, just look good. I think it's more like, you have your investments tied up in crypto and if crypto collapses, that's really bad for you. So Maybe you prop up some schemes that you had nothing to do with publicly, but that's for like the greater good of the ecosystem, which is the greater good of your own bags. We'll see. No, de- de- definitely. The if if they invest this, if they're if crypto goes completely south, you know they also lose a lot of money. Uh, I just think it's funny. I I feel like they really went after a lot of PR marketing <laughs> to, to prop Sam up. You know, which a lot of people do with that amount of wealth. It's not like it's completely unique, but can't say that I completely buy it, but at the end of the day, you know, I would like to see <laughs> some things get saved, you know, it's ultimately better for the space. But at the same time, I don't know what kind of precedent it sends. Uh, it's kind of a, you know, double-sided coin, but wanted yeah, to... I think here, you, you had a recent tweet recently about like the dichotomy of like free markets versus regulated markets. I, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think that's that's pretty relevant here if you want to hit on that point. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just something I've been, there's a few dichotomies I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, we've seen with crypto is fairly unregulated, you could say. Um, and clearly, we don't self-regulate <laughs> very well. Uh, we kind of, you know, the crypto ecosystem promotes a lot of the bad, a lot of bad things like Ponzionomics. And, and that's what gets, it's like, Everyone's basically completely self-interested, which is how the world works a lot in general. But that, so people trying to just 
how can I make a bunch of money really quickly and, you know, fuck whoever gets affected. It's a game. It's like, this is the game you've entered. It's kind of like if you enter a gang, do you accept that like everyone's trying to fuck each other over? And if you get cat, you know, if you get, if you get taken out, that's just part of the game. Like you accept that, like you can make a lot of money, but this is part of the game. And it's like in crypto, it's like you accept that these, a lot of these things are, you know, a lot of people are going to get fucked but you get the chance of making a bunch of money. And that's what's kind of like promoted and, you know. So anyways, you have these unregulated markets that, you know, promote these, you know, we don't really self-regulate very well and we run into all kinds of problems and we run into all these unsustainability things. And then on the other hand, you have regulated markets which help, you know, try to prevent some of that but ultimately lead to regulatory capture. And, and I don't trust the regulators. They're self-interested actors and they create kind of this pay to play or this kind of like whoever is closest to the regulators benefits and it, and it kind of snowballs itself into this kind of like where the regulatory has an interest, you know, it has a point, it has, it's not a, it's not a credibly neutral regulator. It's a, it's the regulators get captured and then the people who closest to the regulators use that to capture more market share and it becomes an, un, you know, an unfair dichotomy. So like both systems aren't really uh, great in and of themselves. And so I, I don't know where the, what the answer is, but, but you do have these kind of two dichotomies going. Um, but I think you have a few other, and I think that these dichotomies are going to really lead kind of to two places. You know, one, I think DeFi is going to split. I think you're going to you're going to see regulated DeFi, and I think you're going to do that because they're going to do that a few ways. They're going to use these examples to go after. They're going to, you know, they already control the on-off ramps, and that's the biggest choke point I think in crypto. I think they're going to make examples on some of the non-compliant and they're going to use that to scare the rest into compliance because most will just comply because they don't want to break the law. And, you know, they re- if you stand out there and do that, it's going to be like you're doing something illegal. And so I think a majority of the market is probably going to come under some regulated, they're going to go the regulation route. I think probably most of DeFi to be honest, whether I like to say that or not, whether I agree with that or not. And then I think you're going to have unregulated DeFi, which are like basically totally trustless DeFi applications that throw away their admin keys and, and just operate totally trustless. And, and and I think there's benefit in that. There's also risk in that. Don't get me wrong. Like I think trustless is a great ideal, but to have no, like I, I was thinking about this the other day. Because I was, you know, if you go totally trustless, like you have, you kind of almost have to build the protocol perfect from the onset. And like, how, how realistic and practical is that? <laughs> I mean, that the, the amount of pressure to think of like every possible scenario with no backup solution is like extremely risky, extremely, extreme amount of pressure. Um, I feel like those kind of things, you know, maybe they build up over time, perhaps, you know, whereas something gets time tested, then eventually you can do that. 
But anyways, it's kind of a scary dynamic. But also, obviously, I would love for everything to move that route, just me as from a personal preference. But I don't think it's moving that route. And I think the, the kind of unregulated DeFi will move into more of a black market, kind of more of a wild, wild west. Uh, just And it will just be the target of massive PR campaigns by the government, by traditional institutions. And this is probably where it will go. Um, so you won't get this full realization of DeFi, but maybe you will get some additional layers of transparency and maybe you will get some additional layers of governance. But I don't know, governance has its own issues that we can discuss, but it's kind of my first thought. I feel like we're kind of in an awkward position where like we kind of just lump call everything DeFi and like when you have Uniswap and then you have like almost like a DYDX and you have like there's there's applications you can deploy and it's out there and it can just run by itself. It's just a smart contract, no admin key. It can work on its own. And Uniswap is like the premier example of that. And then there are platforms in which there are a lot of buttons and dials that need adjusting to keep the users of that platform safe. And they use DYDX because they're a leverage platform. And once you start messing with leverage, then you need to control loan to value ratios, interest rate curves, which assets are supported, listing and delisting assets, and like all that requires somebody to do that. Um, and so the, you know these two different types of applications are not going to have the same uh, trustless guarantees. You know you can have a <laughs> you you can have a money market or a leverage platform where you just throw away the keys and it's not configurable, but then a token's risk profile changes and all of a sudden a uh, platform's at risk insolvency and nobody can step in to tweak a parameter. And so there are situations in which, you know, there's some protocols in which, you know, they have this management, somebody needs to take in this administrator role. And there's a whole spectrum on how that's approached. You can go from fully centralized, it's just some guy in his basement with a private key, you can rug everybody in one instant, to the idealism, it's a DAO, the community token holders configure these parameters and we're kind of there's a wide spectrum between here and we're just kind of calling everything it's just DeFi, <laughs> but it's just there, that loses all nuance and people say well no it's not really decentralized because there's this upgradability and it's like okay that's a fair point it's not completely trustless and that unfortunately was a large selling point that just isn't really the reality but there are platforms where you need to have upgradability and then it gets into the question What's the best way to handle upgradability? If there is a major exploit, how do we fix it in minutes? And that's just, it's not an easy problem. And I think that that gets into a, another fork in the road. Maybe the better, it's not, it's, 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 there are forks in the road, basically. I think it gets to another point of you have this active versus inactive governance fork happening. So you, you have, on one end, you have protocols that, you know, are, are not built perfect from the onset, which I think is most technology in existence. Um, and people want to actively take measures to prevent certain things from happening uh, that they didn't foresee. And on one end, you know, that you could say that's bad protocol design, which to some extent, that's, I mean, that's true to a certain extent. But also, I think the reality is that this is always this is always going to be the case for most applications, um, and then if you if you react if you don't have the ability to react, yeah, you could lead to you you could just the p- protocol just go completely belly up in a very fast amount of time if you don't react quickly. But at the same time, 
once you start to open up governance features more, you know, you open Pandora's box to human intervention, which then becomes the choke point that, you know, trustless applications were supposed to prevent. And so you have these people who, you know, the one side wants to keep applications completely trustless, but the other side wants to start to open this Pandora's box. And, you know, the reality is, I, you know, Phil Diane actually, I think, had a good point on Twitter about this. But, you know, at the end of the day, all these applications rely on consensus. And consensus is always going to be kind of a human element, no matter even Bitcoin. All these things are going to be a, there's going to be a human element to that. I don't think you'll ever get rid of that human element. And so the question, so I think you'll just find people who try to go into the camps that have the certain human element. Like so a lot of people are going to want some human element. They're going to feel more comfortable with some human element to intervene. Like if I had my funds on something and there was no upgradability, I might be a little nervous, but some people might be nervous that those that that governance could be attacked and then that you know large players could influence it. So that depends on what risk you're more comfortable with. Um, but this this is really getting into the heart of what governance like governance is going to become a bigger, probably a deeper researched and more thought out thing. And I think ultimately it will come down to what what community, what founders, who you trust most to some extent even though that was kind of or or you might have to build into the smart contract what the DAO can actually do think more critically on like what parts of the system the DAO can influence or control or under what circumstances can they do that how the consensus is reached amongst the DAO you know things like that but this is going to become I think a much deeper point of discussion yeah I feel like sometimes we kind of forget like these are these systems are built to serve humans, and if they're not serving them properly, then properly, then they were just like a science experiment. Of like, it's really cool if we can build something in theory that nobody can corrupt, but if it's not useful for anything, why did we build it in the first place? So I, I think really the goal is to not necessarily create a system that's completely trustless, because in reality nothing is trustless. Even running your own blockchain full node. And validating every single transaction is not trustless if you didn't go through every single line of code and review it yourself. And even then, you're still trusting, you know, Intel not to have a backdoor in your chip manipulating everything that gets displayed to you. Like there's always some level, it's an infinite regression. There's always going to be some level of trust. But really, the goal is to minimize the amount of trust that we need within specific powerful entities and basically democratizing control. And so when it comes to democratizing control over a Uniswap, Dex is easier than something a platform that needs a lot of configuration to it. So I, I think that governance is going to evolve a lot. I think that some people seem to assume that just because you have a DAO, you've solved governance. It's decentralized, but there's so many nuances when it gets to token distribution and just the level of control. I mean, we've seen DAOs like recently with uh, I think it was Solend basically voting. <laughs> to revoke someone's position and take control over the position and give it to the team. And the whole situation was basically just uh, using a DAO as a decentralization theater, spin up a DAO in 24 hours, six hours to vote, a single whale pushes the vote through. I mean, it it, it, get, it gets really tricky where you know we're kind of pretending like these systems are really decentralized. And I think we just need to address the reality that 
governance is always going to be a tricky issue and it's going to be more centralized for these applications. I mean, you just need to be able to be agile and we need to be able to adjust. We're not, we're not just going to all of a sudden figure out governance. I don't think if you look at the history of the world, governance is, is there, I think there is no perfect solution. Like trustless is kind of like a perfect, it sounds like it's a perfect ideal. And, but it's not actually practical in reality. And so the question is, what level of trust minimization do you want and what trade-offs are you okay with? And also, look, people like to shit on DAOs. Like, people like the first you know, over-sensationalized DAOs is like, oh, we've solved it. We decentralized governance. It's amazing. Like We've seen DAOs are far from perfect. And actually, a lot of teams that are, you know, like look, Chainlink doesn't have a DAO, and I think they operate much more efficiently than, you know, almost all other projects out there. So like, there are lots of problems with DAOs. But at the same time, people like to shit on DAOs. Um, and that doesn't mean that DAOs are a bad thing either. I think the ideal is, is valid. But the question of how to go about it, and how to design, you know, look, be upfront with the trade offs with it. And, and, and I think you'll, people, will, some people will like some models more than others. I think this will be that like there won't be one type of DAO. There'll be lots of different types of DAOs, and people will, you know, it, it's just we, we're so early in in how DAOs operate. I think that, you know, I, I ultimately think we'll move towards like kind of what the United States was supposed to be, and not really doesn't necessarily operate exactly like this anymore. But you know, you have kind of a delegation of you have a balance of power, and you also have kind of representatives that kind of. You know, I, I don't think like every de- direct democracy on everything. I don't think really works well. Most people are not um, don't want to. Part- First off, most people don't want to participate. Like pe- people think they want to participate, then they actually get asked to participate and they don't. Second, most people are not technically savvy enough to 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 give in- informed opinions on most things. Um, so the question. So then you get down to okay, well, what do you what do you do you well, you could be totally trustless, which may work for a few select applications, but or you, you know, have representatives and, and you trust those representatives to some extent. And, you know, that's just how it operates. And you get some additional layers of transparency, I think. You get some additional layers of being able to influence and talk more directly to the decision makers. So there are some benefits, um, but it's not like, you know, we need to get rid of this illusion that like, oh, we're going to, everything's going to be perfect. Like it's never going to be perfect. Not even Bitcoin is totally trustless. Nothing is trustless. That's why I don't really like that word. I think there's a spectrum of trust minimization that I think you can go on. And, and, and again, more trustless is also not always better. Like it may be better. It may well, but also it does come with certain risks. Like there is no backup. And, and if you're okay with that, you know, because you're more concerned with centralized actor taking control, fair, uh, that's a valid concern. But also, if there's a situation, there's no recourse. You had a point about not everyone wants the vote and not everyone necessarily should be voting. Some, like a trend I've noticed is like, it's very easy for like bike shitting to happen where people get caught up on one small issue, like a DAO voting on whether the team should take a trip to the park and have lunch. Like that's at a certain point, you need to delegate some of these tasks to people who actually have a longer-term version uh, vision 
And you know, we could see token holders in these market environments can get very, very scared and they may jeopardize the long-term sustainability of a protocol because they're scared that short-term price action uh, is not favorable for, to them. So I think some kind of checks and balances, some type of uh, board of directors type model. I mean, crypto hasn't solved governance. And I think we're with, with DeFi, we're running into the, a lot of the same problems and blow up risks that we saw in traditional finance like 100 years ago. And we're basically doing the same exact thing with governance saying, oh, man, wouldn't it be great if every single person voted in every small decision? It'd be totally democratized. But it's just that's not scalable. And that's just never actually achievable in reality. And that's not even a situation you want. And also, like, that's also assuming, I think this gets more into my rant about democracy. It can become mob control. And that's also assuming that people make rational decisions and not emotional decisions. This is actually why, what was it, so- Socrates, I want to say? Or one of the famous philosophers, <laughs> was, or Plato, is very against democracy. Now, I'm not shitting completely on democracy, but also like, that's assuming people make wise decisions. And I think we've seen a lot of people make emotional decisions and self-interested decisions and not the interests of the protocol in general. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that direct, you know, because even if everyone voted, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way to do things either. It could be or it could not. Um, and so, yeah, that goes my, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of problems with democracy. One other thing I wanted to touch on while we're at it is one thing I think that the, the space has to shift towards, and I think there's a reason it hasn't fully shifted this way, but is that token economic models, I think half the shift to sh- sharing fees with with token holders. I think just pure governance tokens, you know, they have some value, but I think ultimately you need to have this revenue sharing. But you got to be careful. You can't share too much revenue or you can't, you can't take out too much cut or you might get risk of getting undercut. Um, but I think you, you have, but I think the reason that a lot of protocols have not gone this route is because regulators are not letting them go this route because when they do that, they get, they're going to be potentially deemed as securities. And so that is whole actually holding up. I think a lot of token economic models more than people think. Yeah. This kind of goes towards like, uh, you know, how do we take crypto to the next level? Having protocols issue governance tokens as basically a subsidy bootstrap to basically purchase users and ac- user acquisition costs have been very effective. But the thing is, you have to take the next step of like, okay, why does this asset fundamentally have value in the first place? And cash flows is a very solid reason for a lot of these tokens existing. I think that kind of like a deeper question is like, how does a protocol generate revenue? If you can easily just fork code, can you just fork a protocol? take out the fee revenue extraction and then deploy a new version. Um, you know, that, that's, it sounds easy in theory, but I, I feel like I saw a blog by Multicoin Capital about this recently, but it's like the only tokens that can realistically extract value are tokens that are either used as collateral underwriting risks, or there are some governance parameters that need to be adjusted. So like when, when you look at different models of how token can be used, I don't mean to keep going back to Uniswap, but when you look at a DEX like Uniswap, you're not the token doesn't underwrite any risk because you know it's just two pool two tokens in a pool that users can trade with. You know that's the LP takes on the risk there. There's nothing to underwrite. And what kind of governance decisions need to be made there? 
as far as I've seen, the only governance decisions really made for DEXs is like, what chain do we play on? You know, do we change the curve? The if, if it's something like a very simple DEX, then there just isn't that much to really govern over. So how can the uni token justify taking any fee if you could just easily redeploy it? And the argument really just comes back to like, maybe the liquidity is very sticky, but if you could just vampire attack it and everyone just goes to DEX aggregators anyway, it's unclear that like, yes, maybe you could be taking revenue, but then you're just inviting people to fork you out because your token isn't actually really contributing that much value to the ecosystem. So in my mind, there's kind of two questions of how do protocols generate revenue in the first place? And can they defend taking revenue in the first place at all? Um, And so in my mind, more and more tokens are going to be started to use as collateral. We could see this Ethereum is basically collateral backing the Ethereum ecosystem. Aave is staked in the safety module. And so if there's any downfall event, Aave gets slashed and that gets used to pay back the debt. We saw this with Maker during Black Thursday two years ago when they had a downfall event and they were in the hole $10 million, Maker tokens got printed to cover that hole. You know, if, if you fork these applications and you deploy a new version, even if you suck all the liquidity over to this new version, your token's not going to have the same market cap and it's not going to have the same backing, the same safety net. If you have two applications and they're all equal, but one has a market cap of $10 billion token backing it, and one has a valueless token or no token backing it, people are going to go to the one that's safer that has the collateral backing it uh, just naturally. And so when you have this giant collateral pool backing it, you're taking on the risk. You can justify taking some fee cut out of that because you're directly taking on risk. If your token doesn't involve taking on risk besides price action, which like, you know, the markets control that, then it's really hard to justify taking a fee in the first place. And so not to like drag this too much to Chainlink, but in my mind, that's why Chainlink shifting to like a staking model where Link backs Oracle services is the way the ecosystem needs to shift because it makes it totally changes how the Link asset is working and actually backs these Oracle networks and can really justify extracting value from all the applications that rely on those oracles because it's directly underwriting that risk. So that's it's it's more of like my thesis around tokens in general, but the there's always edge cases, but that's just that's generally my thinking here. And I think actually we're moving people who are going to deploy capital or use applications that demand for um, underwriting risk and backing up potential problems it's going to be very in demand. Like I think g- given how all these things have blown up because they couldn't, you know, they weren't they, they couldn't handle, you know, big events like large market movements, you know, people are going to take a lot less risk in deploying DeFi protocols or at least with any amount of substantial capital. And so protocols that they will pay a slight premium, I think to have this, you know, in basically insurance on the protocol for various types of risks. So I do think after all this is said and done and people finally, you know, it's going to take some time and people finally look back and they assess the risk and they want to start to deploy again, they're going to want, these things are probably are finally going to become more in demand, I think. Uh, and so, you know, whether that's backing Oracle services, backing lending platforms, insurance funds to back DEXs or whatever, you know, I think those those are going to become more in demand. People are going to become a little bit less or be more risk adverse when deploying capital, because I think everyone kind of just 
was a wild, wild west, and people didn't think that much about risk because everything was going well in the bull market. And now a lot of people got screwed over and they're not going to take on those same risks. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's If things go this way, does that mean every protocol is going to basically become an insurance company? I think there's another aspect. Like, It's not just about like underwriting risk, which I think is important, but it's also like governance parameters. The token holders is the most natural community to be managing this parameter. And they're basically taking on the risk. If they do not set these governance parameters correctly and some hole happens, the people who made the, that decision should be the ones filling the hole back up. So it's kind of entwined. It both needs to be the decision makers and it need the decision makers should be taking on the risk. And we're basically tokenizing that in this respect. And I think that, you know, in, in 2018, the theme during that bear market is like nothing needed a token. Tokens were worthless. They were garbage. And this was basically backflow from the ICO where everyone issued a token for every stupid little use case. They had to have a token around it. Um, and I don't think we're going to go back into that phase of like nothing needs a token. But I think it's we're going to go into the phase of like, we don't need a governance token. You know, we'll just have a board of directors. We'll have a soul bound token or NFTs, give it to them and they'll govern the system. We don't need a token. And so I think moving past that, you know, what, what good is the market cap? The market cap underwrites risk. It's a very logical explanation and it's half economics and it's half narrative. Like you kind of said, people will feel much more comfortable investing their money in this risky DeFi thing if they know there's $10 billion of uh, tokens backing up if something happens. It doesn't need to be one-to-one -one backed. That's not scalable. That's not sustainable. It's just that becomes a bottleneck. But if you can handle a 5 to 10% hole in your protocol appearing and you can cover that up by minting tokens, then it's a very realistic route. And I think it's what most projects need to move towards. And once you can have this insurance model, that's when you can start to really um, justify value extraction. I, I think when, when we're on the topic of like economics, I... I you know, I'm kind of like a data junkie, so I like looking at these like Dune analytic dashboards that community members create around their tokens and their project. But it's kind of funny. You know, they, they love to show you the metrics that are awesome about the protocol, and they don't show you the metrics that don't look so good. Um, it's hard to find a dashboard for a protocol that shows the issuance rate or the inflation rate or how many new tokens are entering, entering the supply. You know, they'll love to tell you how much revenue they generate, but not how much they're spending in token subsidies. So I feel like in this next stage, we, we really need to provide people better data about the economics of these tokens. What are the actual cash flows and what are the actual expenses that these protocols are undergoing? Because currently, protocols that may look like they're flush in revenue are not capturing any of it and they're actually expending a bunch of token issuance that token holders just don't, don't realize. So that's more of like a framing thing. People aren't going to feel comfortable taking on this risk of owning this token in the first place, underwriting risk they don't understand the risk that they're underwriting in the first place. So I don't know if every protocol will become an insurance company, but this is a model that makes a lot more sense than, hey, we have a governance token that governs stuff. Um, that's about it. Oh, and by the way, here's a vote that a whale is going to push through. It seems like, yeah, the, the underwriting risks and governing the protocol is like should be like one function, one combined function that then earns you revenue and somehow the revenue that you earn has to be enough to cover that risk and also you have to be earning some reasonable rate of return and i think it at least has to be better than traditional markets 
Um, so, so that's going to be an inter- like it's going to be an interesting. Uh, what exactly that amount is? It's not going to be as high as people. You know, people are going to have to eventually get used to earning lower rates of in- of uh, return on their investments. People, these like days of like ten thousand APY or even like 20, 30, 40% APY. There's a re- those are unsustainable. They're totally unsustainable. And so people are going to have to, eventually we're going to converge more to where TradeFi is, TradFi, whatever you want to call it, is, or, or maybe slightly better. But I think the, the, the efficiencies that people have talked about may allow these platforms to under, or to, to give a little bit better uh, rates of return because they're going to be a little bit more efficient, but it's going to be, it's not going to be like 5%, 10% difference. I don't think it's going to be a smaller percentage and people are going to have to get used to that. You know, like you're going to, you, that's where you're going to preserve your capital. And if you want to make more speculative bets on new investments, fine. But I don't, I don't think, you know, it's going to be much harder for copycats to exist. I think moving forward because people are not going to want to, take on that risk and they'll be happy. They'll be more content with taking a 5%. I feel like people, because the data isn't really great right now, I feel like people significantly over overestimate how much revenue actually exists in our ecosystem currently. Like there's not really a single protocol that's consistently profitable at a reasonably decent size. Like there's just, there's not that much revenue to go around and the revenue that does exist is mostly on the back of speculative activity, which you know, the speculative activity is dying down and thus revenue is dying down. And just, I don't, people don't necessarily consider where the revenue is going to come from. Like we'll take a, a cut of, you know, every trade. Okay. Why are people trading in the first place? Oh, they want to trade for tokens that also generate revenue because they take a cut of the trading fees. It, it kind of gets into like, where does the revenue come from? How do we actually grow revenue in a very sustainable way? Issuing tokens to users to get them to use your platform to spend fees is not sustainable because you're always going to be spending more in token issuance than you're going to be making in the fees. It only works if you only show people the metric where you make a lot of money and you don't show them the metric on the side that shows how much you're spending. Like it's the mismatch has gone on for too long in our ecosystem. And I think we just need to come down to reality of how much revenue that really exists. And in my mind, the way of getting to actual real sustainable revenue that does not just depend upon reflects upon economic systems, which are very cool and fun and profitable, but are not sustainable, is really bringing real-world assets on-chain. That's how we're going to move forward into the next step of having real revenue streams that are sustainable. We've kind of seen with like stablecoins, in my mind, like if we're just looking at the application layer, not the infrastructure layer, stablecoins is the product market fit of crypto. Like They've scaled from a billion to like 180 billion in supply in the past couple of years since the last market peak, and they provide a definitive, tangible value proposition that's better than the status quo. They are cheaper to transact. They are easier to transact. They are composable, programmable money. And I mean, I posted about before, but I'm, you know, if there was a way to go long on stable coins directly, I would. I mean, I don't, I don't expect Tether to go to $2 or something, but like that, that is a real product market fit. And that's because that's a real world assets. They're dollars tokenized on chain. It's basically the case study for DeFi. And I feel like to emulate that success, we need to start emulating a lot of TradFi because DeFi is really not that different than TradFi. We're just building different rails. So we need to be able to 
bring equities on chain, bring corporate bonds on chain, bring government treasuries on chain. We can use the same exact infrastructure of DEXs and money markets and derivatives, but now we have assets that are not just very recursive, reflexive, but actually have tangible external value. And that gets into like, why hasn't that happened? Well, regulation. <laughs> it's full circle back to regulation. It's not the full reason, but... It's a, it's a large reason. It's probably, I would say, 90% the reason of like, companies aren't able to. Because that that's where, yeah, that's where when you touch traditional assets, that's where you get into a lot of legal gray areas. And so that's definitely a large reason why that hasn't really happened at any type of, hardly at all, to be honest. Yeah. And if we do this like fork route of like, we have regulated DeFi, we have Wild West trustless DeFi, you know, where are the real world assets going to go? They're going to go on the regulated DeFi. Um, and that's where the revenue streams are going to be. And so you, we can have these trustless applications and, you know, we can transact in player casino games and it's very fun, but if we want to have sustainable revenue streams, whether we like it or not, it's going to happen in this regulatory bubble. And that's not to say we're giving up all the advantages of DeFi and crypto. It's still able to be much more transparent. It still can be much more efficient. It can still lower counterparty risk. But in reality, the powers that be are not going to allow an ecosystem to be completely trustless and have no oversight and have no <laughs> ability for regulatories to ha- exert some amount of control. Um, it's kind of an unfortunate reality, but if we want to have the sustainable revenue stream, we have to have some type of compromise in the middle. If we maintain the route of maximum decentralization, you can't have maximum decentralization and bring world assets on chain. Unfortunately, they're mostly incompatible. Um, it's going to start by wrapping assets and then it's going to be minting assets directly ownership records. But in my mind, if we take this route, it's going to be 90% plus regulated DeFi, 10% Wild West DeFi. And so we can already see projects in the ecosystem kind of moving towards one of these directions. It's still all jumbled as one thing DeFi, which is just not a great way to explain it. But I don't know if, what your thoughts are here, but in my mind, most things are going to go the regulated route in DeFi. I think so too. I mean, and that doesn't mean that I like that. Like I have... Plenty. It's just the reality. Problems. <laughs> it's just the reality. Yeah, I'm not like picking a side. Like, of course, I would love everything to be trustless, decentralized. You know, this utopian idea. And look, I, I don't even like. There are so many issues with trustless applications and and this and that. Like, it's not like trustless is like some perfect solution either. Um, so I, I don't really know where I fall. Like I have, you know, I hate regulatory capture. I think there are so many, like, it's, it's such a, the way it works now is such just like a few play, like, it's like, um, what's, I think the Cantillion effect is one of the best ways to describe it is like, whoever is closest to the center of power, which in the Cantillion effect is the money printer benefits the most. And that's not really that's not a good model. We see, you know, how destructive inflation and all these things are. Um, so, but at the end of the day, it's not going to move unregulated. People aren't ready for an unregulated market. It's way too much volatility in a completely wild west. Um, so, where hopefully we can, people need to like think more or 
a practical strategy might be to try to push regulations in the right direction as much as you can. Um, Cause I don't, I just don't think there's enough political support. If there were like enough political support either to get trustless applications, like not enough people would be willing to put themselves out on the line and really push hard for this. And so, uh, you know, it's just the yeah, like it's just the reality. Kind of on, the, um, on that I don't point, know. like I've I've made tweets before, like not not calling for regulation, but saying hey, we should work with the regulators, and they're like, oh, why are you? The reactions kind of like, why are you <laughs> calling for regulatory uh, crackdown? And the thing is, if we don't work with the regulators, they're going to create regulation that's just unworkable. Uh, we've already seen this happen multiple times where regulators try to push out some bill or some proposition that would basically just ban huge swaths of our ecosystem. So realistically, the optimal route is to work with them to see what compromises can we make that still maintains the vast majority of the benefits. And I mean, yeah, I agree at this point, there isn't that much appetite for fully trustless applications. So we need to be able to pitch them the benefits that they're comfortable with in terms of making the amount of leverage in a system known, decreasing costs, increasing efficiency, and all the other lovely buzzwords that don't have to do with taking control away from the regulators. So I, I think we just have to work towards some compromise, trying to ignore them and pretend like they don't exist. It, we're just gonna we're just gonna stay in a casino ecosystem, and that's we're not there's, we're not gonna go anywhere if we do that. We're gonna stay in a casino, or there's just there's not enough political will to do that like you're you it's just not gonna happen like people are not and evolved enough to handle that or to to mount that fight i mean i wish even if i even if it could happen like could we even like i don't even know how it would look um so i think it's just not it's just not gonna happen i mean it's nice though the few things i think there's still like one, the alternative exists. So you have this alternative financial system, this trustless system. It's, it's worth building and it should be built. And it's great as like, okay, it's there. If shit got really bad, it might pick up steam. And, you know, it's a great alternative. Another, well, I think Bitcoin just has a trustless form of money. You know, it's not like, I don't, it's not fully trustless, but it's, about as far as along the trust minimization spectrum as you can get. And so you have this alternative form of money. But again, it's not like it's perfect. Like it's also controlled by a lot of large whales to a certain extent. Um, but you know, it has a lot of advantages. I think also what I would like be what I am interested quite in seeing is like it'd be very cool to build social to build like particularly social media apps on chain or partially on chain where the algorithm is kind of more trustless or to as much as you can, or at least like treadably neutral as, as much as you can. I think there's a lot of value in, in creating these types of like, you know, it'd be cool if you knew what the Twitter, how the Twitter algorithm operated or the Facebook algorithm and you, you just kind of, we're aware of how it operates and the biases they might have or wouldn't have, or you remove parts, you know, ways to control it that are, you know, don't need to be controlled or even like search web search algorithms or, you know, a lot of these algorithms, 
even like AdSense accounts and things like that, like these things that I think there's a lot of value there that has not, you know, been tapped into quite yet. So I am quite curious. It's like, I think there are, we're kind of at the stage, you know, Vitalik put out an article about this on his blog, but I think we're at the stage of like, what are blockchains like really useful for? Like, the, like I think we, we, first everyone wanted to put everything in the world on a blockchain and like that was viable. And the question is like, how many of those are better, like actually are better on a blockchain and can be, and are better to such a degree that people will actually switch? You know, if they're like 1% better, is that enough momentum to change the whole industry on this new backend? Uh, you know, probably not. So the question is, you know, what is like definitely better that needs to, that needs to be on a blockchain? I'm also interested in ways of like using Oracle networks to try to trust minimize web two apps. You know how, I don't know how exactly that worked necessarily yet, but you know, I think you've seen it in some things, but like even like a, using a VRF and a lot in a traditional state lottery, well then maybe I can know that they didn't rig the lottery, you know, like that's a easy example, but you know, how, how to move this kind of like hybrid application where actually your backend maybe is more off chain, but how could I use some, use an Oracle, which is kind of anchored to a blockchain to get these kind of cryptographic guarantees on certain aspects of that application. But anyway, it's kind of went on a tangent there, but. Yeah, I think you kind of step into a point of like, not everything has to be on chain. In fact, most things will probably happen off chain and you just prove things about that on chain or use an on chain system to prove things that happened off chain. So it's more of like, it's a way to prove facts about situations and the state of something. You know, we can kind of see this with like Chainlink proof of reserve, where you can have a decentralized Oracle network that proves the state that the collateral backing a stablecoin exists. You know, as we see these funds cascading in their collapse, you know, in their insolvency as liquidity dries up, it would be helpful to know what exactly these institutions had their money in. Um, even with like the largest stable coins tether, we know generally what asset classes they're in, but we don't know what like actual, you know, corporate bonds they've actually put their money into. And so you can, the ability to be able to use, if assets existed on chain, then we would be able to actually prove definitively whether a specific asset is actually backed by what it is. I mean, you, you can look at like STETH and there were some fears around that. But you could cryptographically prove that the asset was actually backed still, even if the secondary price of this STETH derivative, which was really more of a bond, was truly backed by staked Ether. Um, that's kind of just a broader point, but I feel like there are, there are use cases of blockchains where it's not just a financial application you interact with it, but rather this is a machine where you can prove things about the real world and you can prove things to your counterparty directly. So there's different ways of leveraging I think that if we're looking at like basically just like what we need to take crypto to the next level, and we kind of talked about, you know, the assets we can bring on chain, the economics. And I feel like the other one is really just user experience. The user experience of using most crypto applications right now are just, it's terrible. It's you using MetaMask connecting to your hardware wallet and then connecting to a D app and then hoping something in the flow doesn't break. And then just setting that up in the first place is a complete pain. And when something breaks, it's almost impossible to tell really what broke down in the process. The user experience is just terrible. Um, I think that over time, 
just like we make probably have to make compromises regulatory wise and have to make compromises in terms of not reaching a full trustless uh, society. It's going to be the same way with custody. Having crypto on a 12, you know, having crypto backed by a piece of paper we write down 12 words on, and that if you lose that, your money is just gone and nobody can help you is extremely scary. And just for most users, honestly, they're not going to be comfortable with that. It would be ideal if everybody would take uh, personal responsibility and would have a really secure way of storing um, their seed phrase. But realistically, people are careless. People don't really care that much. Um, they don't know how. It's an education hurdle. I think in the future, really, most users who use crypto are either going to just not have custody of it all. They'll interact with a traditional broker or some uh, some fintech application, and they're going to hold custody of it. And there's still going to be benefits in terms of, you know, a Venmo wallet can't even pay like a PayPal wallet. Like there's just no interoperability. But at these web fintech applications are using DeFi and uh, blockchain applications on the back end, it's very, very seamless interoperability. And it's a lot more transparency, even if the user doesn't have direct custody control. But realistically, if we want to have like an ecosystem like Web3 applications that users themselves interact with, it's probably going to be some kind of hybrid model of like multi-party computation type custody where a user holds a portion of the key, some institution holds a portion of the key, and the institution has a backup of another portion of the key. So if the user loses anything about their key, they can recover with the institution. And in that sense, they ha still have some level of control over their assets, but still have the ability to recover their assets if they forget you know, the, their 12-word seed phrase. And it's not censorship resistant at all. It's not trustless at all, but it's a compromise on being able to onboard the 99% who are not comfortable or have the capability of taking on the personal responsibility of not even being able to reset their password because the password is like this cryptographic key. So it, it's an unfortunate reality. But if we take that step towards multi-party computation custody, semi-custodial, you could call it, that really opens up the ability for what I see as like super apps being created. Uh, we see this in more of the Asia markets with like Alipay and WeChat uh, in China, where you have this one application and it's basically just everything. It's uh, it's SMS, it's social media, it's like the Amazon, it's ride sharing, it's like ordering food, it's like everything you need is in one application. And we're going to see the same thing probably in crypto. There's one application, it abstracts away all the complexity, it's semi-custodial, they can help you recover your keys, but you can interact with all the DeFi applications, all the NFT applications, and it'll have SMS messaging, decentralized social media, it'll have all these different varying applications, including non-blockchain applications, but it's going to be semi-custodial. So we kind of see this in very, very proto-early stages with like Robinhood's kind of entering the stage. Coinbase wants to create a semi-custodial Web3 wallet. That's probably how vast majority of people are going to interact with crypto directly. Either that or just the institution they use happens to use crypto on the back end because it's a more efficient uh, and trust-minimized way for that institution to do things. You know, the amount of benefits that trickle down to the user are going to be much, much lower, yet still exist. So, in my mind, that's really where things are shifting. Bro, are you like a government shill or something? <laughs> like a corporate shill? Am I glowy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's. Uh, you're probably correct. I mean, look, I just don't have a lot of faith 
and people taking personal responsibility at this stage of uh, maturity of society. And so that's probably what's going to happen. I think, yeah, it's just going to be, hopefully what happens in the most practical sense, because I don't believe we're just going to all of a sudden go trustless. Although I do think we are going in the direction of a lot of problems in society based on trust breakdowns. So I think we are going on that route um, because the system, the current system just in a lot of different ways, and I don't want to go into it, it's just unsustainable and it's cracking. Um, and people, and also with the way, the, the way the internet has opened up information you know, access to information and and, and, the, and the way, the speed at which people can communicate and discuss things is helping, I call it like the internet hive mind, put, you know, paint a, a more realistic picture of reality as opposed to the public, the PR image that is fed to uh, people about what reality actually is. Um and that's why you see all these information warfares and mimetic warfare going on these days. And a lot of that's just a breakdown in trust. And that's why you see elite institutions talking about how do we regain trust. And so I do think we're going along that route. And if it got extreme, maybe that would change if it got really extreme. But I don't think anyone, well, I don't think a lot of people want it to get to that extreme. It's more like those kind of extremes only happen when it's actually inevitable or it's like, yeah, it just gets so bad that it happens. But I, so I think hopefully what happens is we move, we just keep moving along this trust minimization spectrum more and more. Like we don't have to like go from zero to a hundred. I don't think we're going to go from zero to a hundred, like in an, a decade, but we might start getting, first you get certain transparency guarantees in semi-custodial. And then maybe over time, as more people are crunching on this problem and as we s- develop certain primitives that are better than the previous, we, we move a little bit further along. Um, I think that's what, you know, we can the best hope for that in a realistic sense. And, you know, you do get some, if, if, if you just get more transparency into the system, at least it's better than nothing. Um, it's not, you know, I think the real value is is of self ownership and stuff, but you know that that like you said, I don't see that happening just yet. But anyway, yeah. I think we hopefully we keep moving on this trust minimization spectrum, or we at least get more um, transparency into what your actual relationships are between you know you and some counterpart counterparty, and we and we remove some forms of unilateral control you know, from it. So it becomes a little bit more deterministic and then that becomes better than the alternative we have today. Yeah. It's kind of a depressing thought process, but it's like, we need to start getting a little realistic about where is crypto going to live in society? We're not going to over necessarily going to just overthrow everything and replace everything with the crypto structure. If it really comes down to it, you know, there's still this alternative Wild West version of crypto that you cannot shut down and is not going away. The only question is, is that's is that what society is going to shift towards or is it going to shift towards how every technology has formulated where it's molded to meet the needs of society? 
doesn't have 100% of the benefits that it was originally envisioned to be, but still is a net positive and brings significant benefits to society. So in my mind, we're not <laughs> like just shitting on the concept of crypto and saying, you know, it's impossible to achieve these ideals of censorship resistance. It's just that realistically, we have to be honest if we want actually if we want people to adopt this technology. Uh, I think it's good. We always have this opt-in uh, system over here, which you can't shut down. And if things really shit really hits the fan, maybe things have to hop over to that system. But that's a that's a pretty extreme take um, for a trillion dollar industry that we're just betting on the collapse of everything. Um, some people have that view. It's just realistically probably not going to be the the path forward. And I don't even have a problem with that view. I just you know, it's just likely not going to be what plays out uh, in reality. And so you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, you know. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, recording service failed, and I thought we just lost an hour of recording of this podcast. That would have been horrific. Now we're, now we're on a different service. All things are good. Um, don't entirely remember what our train of thought here was, but I think a broader interesting point to kind of step back into this general discussion is that it seems like we basically are using tokens as a way to bootstrap and subsidize these applications. And then we kind of stepped into like how it's kind of more wadi, uh, more uh, questionable area of like, how do you generate revenue? Can you even justify that? Is there a moat there? Uh, and I feel like in reality is that a lot of these protocols are much more of public goods than really businesses. Um, you know, the, 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 the revenue they can generate is kind of questionable if they really have a source of revenue to extract from. And you know, these public goods still need to exist and need to be bootstrapped into existence. But like, once you've done the bootstrapping, what's the point of this token at this point? And I think that's some protocols that kind of shoehorn a token in there because they needed to fundraise and they had some parameters to adjust and they were hoping for lots of revenue. And then they realized over, the, or well, I guess what I'm predicting is that some are going to realize over time, there really isn't that much revenue to really distribute to token holders. And then they're going to have to make a hard pivot on what to do with their token. Uh, it's kind of like a token not needed type situation, which um, it's going to be interesting to see how those protocols play out. Um, not sure if you have any 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 thoughts here, but it's going to be very tricky for some protocols. Yeah, it it might end up moving more towards traditional equity. Um, I think you might see more business models that go the more traditional route. Because it becomes, yeah, it's hard to work the token into a lot of applications. I think it's a, it's less hard on the infrastructure layer, but you know, it's it's more there's more reason to collateralize risk at the infrastructure layer. But at the app layer, a lot of these projects don't necessarily need to to underwrite a lot of risk, or some of them do. I think there are some financial applications that do, but. So the question is, you know, what what is the business model? And I think the business model may be more like a traditional business model where you you can raise uh, you raise funds through VCs or you raise through I mean the ICO model where you just democratize VC funding essentially, and you have equity in the company, and they rate and they, and they operate more that way where yeah they have revenue. They pay out equity. So it's, it's, I think, where you don't actually need to shoehorn the token into like a fundamental part of the design. 
you just earn equity in the company and it's not so i think you'll see more so your back end is a blockchain your back end is smart contracts and maybe you work some way in where equity is done through a smart contract or maybe you don't like it don't it doesn't you know those are different trust assumptions that projects may choose differently and and, and go different routes and we'll see what happens but because you if every project needs to raise needs to have a token and and tokens are hard to shoehorn and like feel shoehorned in many cases well that's a problem and that's gonna and, and, and none of the infrastructure layer is very important if the application layer can't be you can't thrive um and so i think this yeah, like you said, once you run out, once you stop subsidizing, what what's your token do? And and a lot of these apps, they just don't necessarily need it. And that's why governance became the, you know, maybe the equity holders in can, they're not governance token holders, but they form governance. I don't know. I think there's a different way to do it. I think it combines a lot of traditional approaches and those things probably have longer timeframes and don't have crazy speculation run-ups. Uh, but again, that's, that stuff was all the stuff that was kind of unsustainable in the first place. I think a lot of that was somewhat justified in the infrastructure layer because you're building a whole new rails for a lot of different systems potentially. But the app layer, I think it's just, it's hard. And I don't, I don't think everything, every app launching a token is really the way that the app layer is going to thrive. Yeah, I, I feel like one approach that could happen is like one, once you've gotten through your subsidy phase and you kind of realize your protocol isn't underwriting risk and there isn't much governance parameters to adjust and thus the proposition of a token is questionable, like you're kind of in a complete state. I wonder if it kind of comes in under like a, ends up being like an M&A merger and acquisition type situation where protocols with these failing economics merge with protocols that have sustainable real revenue flows and have a real need for their token and it just comes under the wing of this other protocol um we haven't seen that the closest we've seen is like rari capital and fay protocol kind of merging together it wasn't under that same pretenses or anything but that's kind of a whole other topic of like how do you acquire a protocol like you take over the development team you buy all the tokens you just say the token's worthless you do a token exchange like it's it's kind of a whole kerfuffle but if your token becomes worthless and your community is up in arms, they need to be bought out basically. So, or it just goes under completely. And then your public good exists on its own with no management behind it, which doesn't always work. So it's kind of a tricky situation. I think over time right now, it's just not clear. Where does the value accrue? You know, it's probably going to be distributed across different layers of the infrastructure, the blockchains, the Oracle networks, the protocols themselves, the UI aggregator layers will take their share, but specific niches within those may not necessarily need a token model and yet it's still shoehorned in there because it's expected you do a token it's kind of like a it's a shitty cycle because like if you don't launch a token you're not competitive if you don't subsidize your application even if you strictly don't need a token today you're going to die out to a protocol that does the same exact thing but they issue a token even if they know it's going to be useless later on like it's a it's a vicious cycle but the only Rabbit. way to win is not to play Revenue share really is like equity, I guess, at the end of the day. I mean, the in a traditional model, they get to choose kind of the dividends they're paying out and stuff. So you could use your DAO or you could, you know, you could structure it however you want. You know, the team could manage that. But so it's kind of shifting to that model where you're going to have to take some cut 
if you don't take a cut, well, why would anyone invest in your token or in your equity in general? And so you, you have to take some cut. What is a reasonable cut? What is, and the reasonable cut is basically what is a reasonable rate of return on your investment. And that has to be competitive with at least be better than what you're getting at a bank or some other things. Um, and, and that has to become the business model. And, and you're going to have, and that's going to have to be, you know, beyond what you're paying in expenses, which is going to be what your on-chain costs, what are your infrastructure costs like Oracle's, uh, and UI and some of this. And so that's why I've been a big proponent of, you know, Chainlink having a large value capture because like an app, the actual service. So they do actually generate a lot of like, you know, a useful app could generate a lot of revenue perhaps, but you know, it's one use case most of the time. Although uh, you might see some super DeFi apps that do a lot of things. Like once you have a lot of liquidity, you could do a DEX lending and you could do multiple things. But I think like with an Oracle layer, you can get value capture from a lot of different applications across a lot of different services across virtually every blockchain and you could even service web two systems directly so you you're going to get a smaller cut you're going to get a small cut you're probably even going to get a smaller cut than the actual dapps because they you know they're just their own cut but when you accrue all those together you potentially have a very large value capture and then if oracles get into you know validation as a service type model where they're running validators for these L2s and different systems, which I think is a very viable model for Oracle's a natural model. Um, I you know. think kind of an alternative here is that like, you're kind of saying like, basically Chainlink has a significant wide net. It's going to power the whole ecosystem and all these different use cases across all these blockchain takes a small cut. And I think there's also a parallel route that could also take where it's the same wide net, but each use case vertical will have basically a few dominant players and those dominant players will generate the vast majority of the revenue and so a handful of protocols will be paying the handful of revenue to the chain like oracles but there's still this wide net of like every ecosystem every use case vertical has dominant players that are paying a significant share to oracles and so i think that's probably likely it's kind of it's almost like the um when you look at the economics like of uh, mobile games where the vast majority of their income comes from a handful of whales. And then there's a lot of small fishes that are long tail that may not even pay anything, but it's the large whales that just uh, pay for the vast majority of the expenses. And in the same sense, I feel like it could be the same thing with oracles where you have these dominant large protocol players that have accrued all the network effects in their, their vertical, but they require oracles to exist and they require secure oracles in order to exist. And they pay the vast majority of the fees in their use case vertical. Uh, you know, and there may be other protocols that pay next to nothing because they can't afford to, but you have these large super apps <laughs> paying for these costs, which is another potential route. It gives me a kind of a tangent, but you know, I was thinking before about like, what is the business use, what is the business model for play to earn games? Because you know, play to earn games were kind of like, hey, let's give you a bunch of our, it's basically like yield farming. Hey, we're just gonna give you tokens to play the game, but like, that's like unsustainable. And what? How can that work over time? And one of the models I was thinking, and it feels like a lot of things coming back to more traditional ways. Like, maybe the investment in gaming is more of 
you invest in a game studio and the game studio produces games and each one of those games comes with a cost to play the game it's like like you buy the game in traditional models and then you play it and so the, the money i think comes from buying the game buying the whatever you know you used to buy the cd you buy the game yes there's a secondary market also for products in the game and you could take transaction fees on people buying the different whatever whatever you know special characters skins objects in the game or accessing special features like that also contributes and so like it's not necessarily like per because once you play a game you're then and you invest just in that game well the game can't produce revenue forever probably unless it's just like constantly played forever and and, and you you generate only a little bit of revenue probably from the actual sale of those things in a secondary market but a studio can release lots of games and it can continue release new releases. So I feel like the play to earn game might be the, the play might be more in actual studios producing games as opposed to every game launching some token. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the dichotomy. If you're investing in gaming, it's do you invest in the title or do you invest in the publisher? And case by case basis, I think that play to earn doesn't work. Play and earn maybe could work. It's just not like if, if, the, if the objective is to earn money, <laughs> it's just going to collapse. You just need an endless stream of money entering the app into the application and then it's going to collapse. So like a lot of play to earn games, if you just print money, inflation is going to get out of control and then everything's going to get devalued. And we've already seen that happen. But like if it's you play the game, you earn some tokens and you know, maybe those tokens are worth a couple of pennies and you can sell that. They know that's like, it basically like the valuations have to be realistic. Like you're not going to be playing a game and that's going to be your full-time income. It's going to be, you're playing a game. You happen to get some tradable items that you have ownership over and then maybe you could liquidate it, but that's not why you play the game. You play it because it's fun. I think you made a, so two good points you made. And this, I actually, I don't remember who made this thread. I wish I could remember because they made some good points, but one you have to actually make a game that people want to play regardless of if you're earning money. Like I think a lot of people they just, they play the game to earn money and that's it. Second, you know, if you don't have the gaming studio model and you just have the actual game, people actually have to put capital on the line to play the game. So now gaming becomes like betting basically. And you're betting that you're better than, other players or that you're winning games and so it's a it's a zero-sum game and right now it's not a zero-sum all the players can get money just from playing it because it's inflation but that can honestly never work and so i i think yeah it's either studio model or the games become very popular and people want to put money on the line but but or you just your valuations of the game have to go way down because you're only relying on secondary markets and then the game existing kind of in you know forever people just want to non-stop playing which is very 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 few games in reality and so yeah and that's another just example of it you know we talked about the DeFi business models but the game game the um gaming models i mean unless you have like advertising and stuff but again that's assuming the game is played in perpetuity forever. And so, you know, I think we're, we're kind of at the stage of what is blockchain useful for and what are the business models that actually work? And then as those happen, 
people need to get used to yields being at a, at a much lower clip than what they think now. And then the days of a thousand X's outside of maybe a few select projects that blow up and have good models, you know, that's probably not going to happen anymore. Yeah. I, I think, I think like the overarching trend here is that we're all basically trying to figure out what economics actually work in this new on-chain paradigm. Um, this applies for DeFi, applies for gaming, it applies for the infrastructure itself. And we've been very successful in figuring out, hey, we can print some tokens and we can subsidize. <laughs> and it's worked great for growth, but now we, our whole ecosystem needs to start thinking more about how do we generate economic systems that are not just good in the short term, but are actually sustainable in the long term. Where does revenue come from? How can revenue be sustained? How can we create an application that people actually want to pay and use over the long term because it provides them real value, not just short-term speculative entertainment? So I think, I mean, during bear market periods, usually when most of the building gets done, most speculative mania uh, can devs do something type Moonboy energy kind of goes by the wayside and it's much more development. And I feel like a lot of the focus right now is on the building out the infrastructure, getting rollups ready so we can actually have reasonable transactions, uh, cost and speed of transactions. But like once we've built out this infrastructure, you know, what's the same, what's the sustainable use cases? And that's requires sustainable economics. And that's something we're still as an industry, we haven't really found what economic models really work yet. The closest is probably Ethereum, but that's very, very much like infrastructure low level. That is nowhere near the application level. Application economics is totally an unproven ground, but it's unproven provides opportunity. Although one thing I will say is well, two things. One, once we can get the like these um, like speed down, where like costs of doing on-chain things is very very minimal. You know whether that's like on some layer three or that's you know wherever it is on-chain trend like if you have to do an on-chain transaction for everything you do on an app you have to pay like and it, when i use most apps today i don't have to pay to use the app that's like one of the differences in, in real differences in blockchains is that you know you, that when in traditional apps you know the, the, the application pays for the hosting and all these different things and whereas in traditional you know, in crypto apps more you you're paying on on-chain transactions for different things. So whether they'll, maybe they'll start to move off-chain, maybe those move into like networks like layer threes or whatever that basically microtransactions are, they're like microtransactions, they're barely worth anything. So if you have a dollar balance, maybe you can make a shit ton of transactions. So you have to, once you do that, I think the development space opens up a lot more. And then, you know, I, I would love to see like apps where you just, I would love to see what would happen with apps where it's, you just, people want to use the service because they get some things they don't get. Like a social media app where the algorithm is open, so is open sourced or is, you know, and then maybe port over. In the, so people just use it because they want to use it. And then over time, you could potentially redirect revenue that's earned you know, whether through advertising or different things back to holders or something like that. But the, the idea is that you could build apps that people just could use just to use as opposed to having to spend all the time only to use. Um, Cause like these like apps, like social media and stuff, 
you know, you, 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 there are lots of things, you know, you can click on and do and things. And so how do you make that in an economically sustainable way? Um, I think you do need some of this higher speed infrastructure to come about before you can do that. And I might open up the space a lot more. Um, so I am really interested in, in, in apps that like people just use because they like to use it. I think there's a lot of people out there would use certain things like this if, you know, they really worked well. And then they can build up over time, but it becomes harder now when you have to do all these on-chain transactions and it's very hard and expensive. Hey, scalability is one of the key, <laughs> one of the many bottlenecks that we need to overcome in order to actually be able to build applications that provide real value that users cannot get from the traditional ecosystem. We've, we've discussed a lot of topics in this podcast. I think we could probably keep going for another couple hours at this point, I think. Uh, I want to make more podcasts. I think these conversations are always interesting, even if this is a very uncomfortable market conditions <laughs> that we're currently under. I think there are a lot of things worth discussing since there are issues we need to be able to solve and overcome bottlenecks we need to, to loop through. So appreciate Crypto Oracle, you coming on the podcasts. We should do another one shortly. I just want to say stay safe out there, friends. This is very interesting uncharted waters that we're in right now but crypto oracle do you have any any last word for our audience here no just uh, try to survive um i don't think crypto is over i don't think i think this technology is very young um it, it might not achieve the well it's not going to achieve the idealistic utopian vision of a trusted society particularly not right away um but i think the technology is still very there's still a lot of value that we have. There's, I mean, I'd say 98% of the value we have not unlocked yet. It's going to take time. You know, s set realistic expectations. Like, get rid of the, this idea that you're going to, like, stop thinking crypto is your savior. Don't live life thinking crypto is your savior because you're just going to be stressed as fuck all the time. And, and, and it's just, it, you can't, you shouldn't rely on external dependencies for your own happiness or, oh, I'm going to finally live my life when X happens. Like, it's just not a way to live. You know, if you make it great, you know, but if you don't, are you still happy? And you should have that mindset that, yes, you still will be. Also, I would encourage people, you know, get a hobby, take your mind off things, use this time to learn about crypto a bunch. If you really, if you're really into the industry, you want to work in the industry, or you just want to be, do better next cycle or whatever, like, Use this time to learn about the industry, or again, just find a hobby and 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 you know take some time away. You know, constantly focusing at twenty four seven with like this is I have to make it, or if I don't make it, then I'm dumb. You know, that's that's a terrible mindset to have, and it's only going to cause you to be stressed as hell all the time. So I, I would really try to step away and 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 just accept, okay, I'm happy regardless, or I'm going to make sure I'm going to set myself up in a position where you know, I'm happy regardless because I've done that in the past. I know lots of other people that have done that and it's not really a good way. And it's not a good mentality to live by. Yeah, that's it's very, very sound, deep advice for people. Please stay safe out there, friends, and I will see you next time.